London, England, 1890. On a dark October night, a young woman pushes a large, heavy baby carriage along rain-soaked cobblestone streets. The woman is Mary Piercy. She is young and single. She's having an affair with a married man. Mary finds a dark spot on an empty road. She tips the carriage over. A woman's dead body tumbles out. Mary lifts the dead woman's hand. She takes the wedding ring from her finger. One more crime committed by a jealous lover. My name is Tori Telfer. I'm a true crime writer captivated by stories of women who commit murder and by how society reacts when they do. When a woman kills, we often try to make sense of what happened by giving her a label, the Black Widow, the Angel of Death. Do those labels help or hinder our understanding of what really happened? In this episode, what drives a jealous woman to kill and why we are so captivated by her story. This is Why Women Kill, Truth, Lies, and Labels, a podcast presented by CBS All Access. Don't forget to watch Why Women Kill, a new television series about three women driven to commit murder. Stream it now, exclusively on CBS All Access. Jealousy is one of our least flattering emotions. It's also one of our most complicated. It can come from a desperate desire for something we don't have or a fear of losing something we do. It can also make us do some unthinkable things. Maybe that's why it's central to the plot of countless Hollywood movies, country songs, and Shakespearean plays. Who among us can say that we've never felt jealous? But it doesn't mean we're going to kill someone because of it, right? But when a murderer is labeled a jealous lover, we assume right away that their crime has been especially vicious. Police investigate jealousy-fueled attack. Jealous killer stabbed friend to death with hunting knife as he lay in ex-girlfriend's bed. Jealous killer's parole revoked for hiding affairs. Jealous wife arrested for love triangle murder. A jealous lover who kills is typically someone who is involved in some kind of a love triangle. Someone in the love triangle is threatening their relationship, or they are aware at some point that their relationship is not going to work out and someone is winning. That's Dr. Joni Johnston. She's a forensic clinical psychologist and a private investigator. I think most of us can relate to somebody feeling jealous, somebody feeling threatened, even though we would never cross some lines, I do think it's a, a type of killer that most of us can relate to in some ways. I think that many of us would be surprised by what we might be willing to do given certain circumstances. Mary's story begins in 1886. One day, she's out running errands, and she meets a man who will soon become her complete obsession. So she goes down to the grocery store, and there she meets Frank Hogg. She's instantly smitten with him. That's Professor Sarah Beth Hopton. She wrote Woman at the Devil's Door, which tells Mary Piercy's tragic story. He's an assistant grocer at his parents' local grocery store. He's not terribly attractive. 
Not everyone would think Frank was a catch, but Mary is enamored. She falls head over heels in love and starts writing him letters and leaving letters for him on the counter at the grocery store about her affection and increasing admiration and adoration of him. She pursues him relentlessly, and slowly they start a friendship and then a romance. Now it's 1888. Mary is 22 years old. She lives in a small flat on the northeast side of London. It's little more than a bedroom, a kitchen, and a sitting room. There's a piano and a fireplace. She was often seen by neighbors sitting in front of the window in a rocking chair, reading a book. Mary and Frank are having regular rendezvous at her apartment. They had a little secret code that they would use to let Frank know that she was home and alone because Frank was not Mary's only lover. And Mary isn't Frank's only lover either. He already has a girlfriend, Phoebe, and she doesn't know about Mary, not yet. Then Phoebe becomes pregnant. Frank panics. So on the day that Frank finds out that Phoebe is pregnant... He goes to Mary for consolation and advice. Frank definitely didn't want to get married at all. In fact, he's so anxious about it, he thinks he has to leave London completely and disappear. Mary's reaction to the news tells us a lot about her mindset. She doesn't send Frank away. She doesn't demand that he choose between her and Phoebe. She says, okay, we can make this work. And she thinks, in her mind, so long as she can keep Frank close to her, then her womanly wiles, you know, her feminine charms, the fact that she's younger, she's more beautiful, she allows Frank to have the kind of sex that he wants to have with her when he wants to have it with her. She's an adventure, right? And Phoebe is just the penalty for being careless. So what? He's got this other person pregnant. So long as he doesn't leave me, so long as he loves me best, I can handle all of that. Mary will do anything to keep Frank around. That much is made clear in one of the letters she sends him. My dear Frank, I won't ask too much. Only to see you for five minutes when you can get away. But if you got quite away, how do you think I can live? I could see you married 50 times over. Yes, I could bear that far better than parting with you forever. So Mary convinces Frank to marry Phoebe, and he does. And that's how the jealous triangle begins. The fact Mary would suggest such an arrangement might hint at her obsession or desperation to hold on to Frank at any cost. But it's also about preserving herself. Dr. Joni Johnston says there's a link between jealousy and something she calls pathological narcissism. I think most of us think of narcissism as like, oh, this person thinks they're better than everybody else. They have a sense of entitlement. And that may be true, but there's a vulnerability to this narcissism, meaning it's almost like this kind of outward facade of kind of appearing to be together and great is really masking a lot of insecurity on the inside. Maybe Mary's narcissism helps explain her obsessive nature. 
Dr. Johnston says pathological narcissists don't handle abandonment well. So this is somebody who, when they're being rejected or when they feel criticized, none of those are things that any of us like, but they take it so personally and they respond to it with desperation. That resonates with what we know of Mary's troubled history with men. Sarah Beth Hopton theorizes that Mary's relationship issues started with her father, James. He was a laborer on the river docks. They really had a very strong relationship. I mean, the mom tells stories about how when James would come home from the wharf, Mary would wait for him on the front steps. And as soon as she saw him, she would run down the steps and, you know, her father would sweep her up into his arms. But when she was 16, life at home took a radical turn. James had a serious accident at work. One day in the afternoon, Mary's father shows up on a gurney. The doctor that saw him said that it was a double rupture, which basically just means that internal organs ruptured and he bled out. And he died 48 hours later. He was the main breadwinner. The family fell apart soon after that. Her mother spent time in a psychiatric hospital. And 16-year-old Mary found herself having to grow up fast. She was probably feeling abandoned, lonely, and in need of love. And it was intolerable to her. I mean, if you look at the pattern of her life and, of course, her eventual crime, you see this over and over and over again, that she she thinks that the father-shaped hole in her heart can be filled by this other man. So she attaches herself to them. It doesn't always go swimmingly. So, with Frank, Mary is doing everything to seem like she's a perfect partner. She doesn't object when he marries Phoebe, now three months pregnant. The couple moves into a flat. It's just down the road from Mary's place. The baby girl is born in May of 1889. They name her Phoebe, like her mom, but everyone calls her Tiggy. As for Mary, she can't seem to help herself she starts getting involved with the family and becomes friendly with Phoebe. She has to do whatever she has to do in order to keep tabs on what Frank's doing and how far his affection is for Phoebe. She even helps care for Frank and Phoebe's baby. So when Phoebe gets really sick after she has the baby, it's Mary Percy that goes and nurses her. Mary is infiltrating the family. Frank is secretly visiting her two or three times a week. And Phoebe finally figures it all out. Phoebe wasn't a dumb woman. She had her suspicions. She moves out. Frank begs her to come back. She gives him an ultimatum. Phoebe says to Frank, look, I'll come home. I will come back to you. We will be a family, but only if we leave Not just the flat. Like, we need to leave, Mary. Frank agrees. He stops seeing Mary. Mary is left reeling. She says she's literally sick with heartbreak. She complains to friends that she's getting nosebleeds and that her eyesight is going. Sarah Beth says all of this suggests that Frank's wife, Phoebe, is a threat that Mary cannot psychologically endure because she realizes that the thing that she's using to feed that monster hole in her heart is going away. 
And if someone prone to pathological narcissism reaches this point, their jealous thoughts can become dangerous actions. Here's Dr. Johnston. Some of the women will have some kind of obsessive tendencies, and as the relationship progresses, it will just take on a life of its own, and they will become kind of consumed about maintaining and protecting this relationship at all costs. It's almost like they see themselves as a reflection of this relationship, and there's some competition that they have to win. You know, if I can't have you, nobody else will, or I'm going to eliminate my rival. Sarah Beth Hopton points to the moment Frank agrees to Phoebe's ultimatum as the key turning point in this story. This is the event that I believe triggers the ramp up of her obsession and what moves her jealousy from a very normal, even valid kind of jealousy to a delusional jealousy to a pathological jealousy. By October of 1890, Mary is growing more and more desperate. She sends Frank letters imploring him to come back to her. She did for her era what would be similarly described in our era as like obsessive texting, saying every minute is like an hour waiting for you. I I know I shouldn't ask, but if you could just please come by for a little while, that would make me feel so much better. It doesn't work. Frank doesn't return. Mary's alone. She's lost the game. Phoebe has won her man. When an obsessively jealous lover like Mary thinks she's lost, her pathological narcissism can take over. Of course, not all narcissists will commit murder. We all have a healthy amount, we hopefully have a healthy amount of narcissism or self-esteem. So Mary's obsessive tendencies might also hint at other mental issues that contributed to what happened next. I'm always very hesitant to link any mental disorder to violence. But by definition, if somebody meets the criteria for a personality disorder, they are not very effective in their interpersonal relationships anyway. In other words, these traits are so extreme that it typically does interfere with relationships. And part of that may be either this person is impulsive, they become desperate when somebody's going to leave them, or they become enraged when somebody's going to leave them. And those kind of things and reactions can lead to violent behavior. So it can lead to violent behavior. In Mary's case, it does. And at some point, Mary Percy decides this situation is not working. What is working, in my opinion, is my relationship with my lover. And so I'm going to keep him and eliminate his wife and his baby. On a Friday morning in late October of 1890, Mary sends a note to Phoebe. She invites her over for tea. For whatever reason, Phoebe decides to go. Maybe she intended to cut Mary off once and for all. And so she took the baby, Tiggy, put her in the pram. They went walking, and there were lots of witnesses that saw her pushing this really big, uh, too big, actually, pram, trying to get it through the door. It was 4.30 in the afternoon, and it was the last time anyone would see Phoebe or her daughter alive. Neighbors later testified that they'd heard shouting and crashing coming from Mary's apartment. Based on those accounts, the state of the crime scene, and what Mary told the police, Sarah Beth says what happened in Mary's apartment that day probably went something like this. 
Phoebe went into the kitchen. They sat down. There was tea boiling, but there weren't teacups out. Phoebe said something that she didn't like. What she probably said was, you're going to stop seeing my husband. The affair is over. We're moving. I want you to have no additional contact with him, with me, with the baby. You're out of our lives. We're done. Hearing this would have broken Mary's heart and confirmed what she feared most. She had lost Frank for good. Here's Dr. Joni Johnston again. Jealousy is a self-protective emotion. And, and we kind of feel that when something that we think is ours is being taken away. Maybe that's what was running through Mary's mind as she grabbed the nearest thing she could get her hands on, a poker from the fireplace. She wheeled around and smashed Phoebe in the head, struck her again and again. The baby, Tiggy, was still in the carriage. The child is probably screaming. We know this because of the neighbor's testimony later. And she most likely goes to the child and either accidentally smothers her or intentionally suffocates her. A lot of times when I read about crime scenes or interview inmates who have been the, I guess, person who created this horrific crime scene, what I hear is about the rage they experienced. It takes on a life of its own. The crime scene suggested a violent struggle had taken place. Broken glass, scattered furniture, and Phoebe's blood splattered on the floor, walls, ceiling. And while all of this suggests Mary acted out of impulse, it doesn't mean she hadn't been planning something long before. When we think about the jealous lover who murders, oftentimes we talk about this crime of passion. And there can be a triggering event that kind of sends that person quickly down the path of murder. But this person oftentimes was thinking about ways to get rid of this person. This person might have already purchased a gun. Um, this person might be having fantasies of how I, I would do it. So is it a crime of passion? Well, I guess it is to the extent that the crime is about the passionate feelings for somebody. But is it a spontaneous act? A lot of times, no, it's not. In fact, a few weeks earlier, Mary had acquired a gun. But if she was planning to kill Phoebe that afternoon, she probably would have had it loaded and close at hand, wouldn't she? Mary had to get rid of the bodies. The baby carriage was reasonably large. Mary stuffed her victims into it as best she could. She covered them up with laundry and headed outside and starts wheeling it miles and miles and miles, eight miles round trip in total. And it's very, very dark at this point. Once the bodies and the baby carriage were recovered by the police, it didn't take much to put the case together. There was the crime scene itself, for starters. And when they arrested Mary, she was wearing Phoebe's wedding ring. In court, Frank Hogg was called as a witness. Sarah Beth says he left quickly after giving his testimony. He didn't just leave the courthouse, he didn't just leave the trial, he didn't just leave Mary, but he left London. Like, he left. Nobody knows where he went. 
Mary was alone when the jury found her guilty. She was sentenced to death, and still she pined for Frank's affection. Her last request, her dying request, was to see him. He had his brother sign the, basically it was like a form, right, saying that he was rejecting the offer and he would not be coming to see her, you know, the day before she died. Mary was hanged on December 23rd, 1890, just two months after the murders. It is kind of surprising to me how often uh, women who end up killing somebody in this love triangle have this fantasy that the relationship is going to be fine. That's Dr. Joni Johnston again. It's almost like a fantasy, I think, starts taking over, but it's not uncommon. No, it's not uncommon for jealous lovers to think this way. It's the crimes themselves that are rare. For instance, the FBI says that in 2017, there were a little over 15,000 victims of homicide in the United States. Only 110 of those murders fall into a category they call romantic triangle. I don't think that women are more likely to kill out of jealousy. I think statistically men are much more likely to kill under a variety of circumstances, including jealousy. So we have a relatively small set of women who kill, and we have an even smaller subset of women who, in this situation, would kill. And yet, the archetype of the jealous female killer endures. Maybe it's because it involves the most intimate of relationships, one that we typically expect women to uphold, not destroy. It just goes against everything that our society has taught us about women and being nurturers and being caretakers and being compassionate and being empathetic. Whatever caused Mary Piercy to strike that afternoon, it seemed pretty clear to the media which emotion had played a major part. When news of the murder spread, at least one newspaper reported that, quote, it is thought that jealousy may have furnished some motive for the crime. Three days after Mary Piercy was executed, Madame Tussaud's Chamber of Horrors unveiled a wax figure of her. They also displayed the blood-stained baby carriage and some items from her kitchen. 30,000 people came to see it. It shows how many of us are deeply intrigued by, maybe even attracted to, the idea of a jealous lover that kills. We can relate to this archetype because we've all experienced the emotional tension created by jealousy. And that tension makes for great stories. Take Shakespeare's Othello, an entire play that's about jealousy. Here's Sarah Beth Hopton. Iago in Othello has this fabulous line where he says, the green-eyed monster which doth mock the meat it feeds on. In other words, we all have the capacity to be both victims and victimizers. We're all equal parts monster and meat. And maybe that's because, whether we're willing to admit to ourselves or not, most of us know that love can have a dark undercurrent. Are we not all, at some point, a victim of the impulse of love? We're all just one short brain circuit away 
from looking in the mirror and seeing Mary. Next time on Why Women Kill, the women who ride or die with their partner in crime. Let's explore our fascination with the Bonnie. I'm Tori Telfer. This is Why Women Kill, Truth, Lies, and Labels, a podcast presented by CBS All Access. Have you checked out Why Women Kill, the TV series? It's the story of three women driven to kill, all living in the same house but at different moments in history. It stars Lucy Liu, Jennifer Goodwin, and Kirby Howell-Baptiste. You can watch it online. It's now streaming exclusively on CBS All Access. Go check it out by signing up for a free trial at cbs.com slash whywomenkill.